Well, howdy-do, Tessa. Yo, what's up, Jesse? Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I am very excited to share some of my Reddit stories today because one of them is not a Reddit story, but sent in from a listener. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, guys, if you have, uh, I make this announcement on every episode, so I'm going to keep doing it even if you're sick of it. But if you have any scary story that you have written that is true or it's fake, please send it in. We would love to read it on the podcast. So let's get started. Okay. Uh, so I have three stories today. Ooh, all right. Okay. So this first one was posted on Reddit by you slash GA3422. What a name. What a name. Uh, it's titled Terrifying Sleep Paralysis Experience. And personally, this story isn't the, I mean, it could be scary to some, uh, like me, because I suffer from sleep paralysis. I'm typing this right after it happened. I've had sleep paralysis before, but never like this. So I was dreaming that I was in Hawaii for whatever reason. I had the typical sleep paralysis experience in the dream where I heard footsteps and stuff like that. I woke up from the dream I was having sleep paralysis in. I could see everything. My TV was on, college football was playing, and the sun had risen because I'm in Florida. I was awake, but I was still paralyzed. I could still hear the sounds from my dream while I was in this half-dreaming, half-awake kind of state. I could not see anything from my dream, however, I was only paralyzed, but I could still hear things and see things from the real world. The footsteps begin to get really close to my bed, and I feel the usual pressure on the top of my body. Nothing too scary though, right? Well, this presence gets really close to me, to the point where I could hear its breathing. It was breathing right in my left ear, and then it whispered something. What is happening? in a really slow and demonic voice. This was the clearest sleep paralysis voice I have ever heard. That's exactly what was on my mind. What is happening? Because I was fully aware and could see everything, but not my dream. Then the presence switches to my right side. I could feel its head on my lung, just nestled up right next to me. Then I forced myself to snap out of it. I've had sleep paralysis so much that it doesn't scare me anymore, and I just kind of let it happen, because it can be fun, honestly. Just letting my brain play it out, and then having the ability to force myself to wake up is cool, if I ever actually get scared. Ah, spooky. It's a conscious demon. Have you ever had gone through sleep paralysis? No, and I'm knocking on wood. I do not want it to happen. <laughs> it's the worst. It is the worst um yeah i have issues with it and i don't know what causes it it's not like i watch scary movies or something like that before bed for it to happen i mean i do that but i don't get sleep paralysis it on those nights trigger it. yeah it just happens so weird yeah um luckily my wife we're at the point now where well she understood pretty early on and she would feel me rustling around and she, what she hears from me is like these muffled like screams. So I'm like screaming, but my mouth is closed kind of 
move movement and sounds. And so she knows that I'm having an episode, so she just puts her hand on me to calm me down, and I go right to sleep. Ah, I didn't know you had that. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. <clears throat> I didn't know that. Okay, so this next story was posted by you slash comfortable ad 4205. And it's titled, An Actual Experience in a Known Haunted House in the Middle of the Forest. When I was a kid, I lived out in the woods with my family. Our neighbor's houses were visibly close to ours, but no closer than that. During the nighttime, it would be black outside, no other light than a distant window. This house was known for being haunted. We once had a medium over to look at the house. The medium didn't even enter the house as she stated that it was like a highway for paranormal activity. One night I was staying up late during a weekend, waiting for my parents to go to sleep. They were watching a movie from their home country. As I was born and raised up here, my parents instead came from another country. Then eventually they went to sleep. I turned on my computer and started doing all kinds of things a kid does on a computer. Playing some games, stuff like that. Elder Scrolls, Skyrim, the usual. Later this night, as I was preparing to sleep, I was watching a movie. Suddenly, I could hear something outside. It sounded like a person running. But as I put more thought into it, I noticed that it was running much faster than what a person should be able to. The footsteps were not as heavy as any moose, nor as elegant as a deer. Then it stopped right outside. It stopped instantly, without any declaration. It's at the main door, the main door that leads inside. And then there's a hallway with a set of stairs and another door. The door leads into the living room where I currently am. And at that window, facing towards the main door, I sit. I look through the window, I can't see anything moving, all I see is complete darkness. Suddenly, something begins to happen. I start hearing, I don't know, something. I turn off the movie, and I listen. I guess I can only describe it as crows talking. I try to listen to what is being said. I can't hear any details, though, but it sounds like a conversation. I try to focus some more, and I focus only on the conversation itself. Suddenly, it stops. Just as I am thinking that I am about to figure out what is being said, I then get this odd feeling that whatever it is was talking had figured out that I was listening somewhat as if it could maybe read my mind. Now I start hearing slow and steady footsteps from out in the hallway right outside the living room. The main door doesn't open. The footsteps walk towards the door that leads to me. Once it's at the door, it stops. I listen for a moment, waiting for the door to open. Then the footsteps start to slowly go towards the stairs instead. I hear it walking steadily up the stairs and then through the door on the second floor. The footsteps continue to walk until it's standing right on top of me. I am now currently standing, paralyzed, and then it continues. But now, it was moving towards a different location. Right next to the room it was currently in was the room that my parents were currently sleeping in. I hear it open the door, and it stepped inside. 
it all went completely silent, and it stayed silent for the rest of the night. This sums up the types of experiences that I expected weekly in our old house in the forest. Don't buy a house in the forest. That is some great advice. I will take that and run. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's spooky. What was it? A Wendigo? It was a ghost, 100%. Just a ghost. Okay, fair enough. Or was it? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. Somebody call Zach Beggins right now. Okay, you ready for my third story? It's my last one. I am. Okay, so this was the one that was sent in to us. Okay, yeah, I'm extra ready. Okay. It's titled Midnight Snacks. I love it already. I'm all about midnight snacks. It's 11 p.m. You have just put on your comfiest PJs, pulled back the covers of your bed, and picked out a good movie. Right before you're about to dive in, your stomach growls. You think to yourself, yeah, a midnight snack doesn't sound so bad. So you patter down the stairs, grab a bag of caramel popcorn, and return to your bedroom. You snack away at the popcorn, but eventually get sick of it. So you roll it up, lay it on the floor next to your bed. The movie ends, and you drift off to sleep. Suddenly, you wake to a quiet, deliberate, crinkling noise. You open one of your eyes, halfway. At first, you assume it's just your spouse awake in the night grabbing uh, Tylenol but the crinkling continues for quite some time. Finally, your spouse sits up and shines their phone in your direction, asking if you're okay. But they stop short when they see you clearly still mostly asleep. In that moment, the crinkling abruptly stops. Sleepily, they ask, what was that noise? And you look at them confused. I thought it was you. I don't know what that was. As you both lay back down, certainly a little perplexed, but chalking it up to it being the dead of the night, you drift back off to a half-sleep, but the crinkling begins again. This time, you both sit bolt upright and look around. Using only the light of your phone's lock screen, you spot the bag of popcorn. Logic dictates it can really be the only thing making the noise. Somewhat placated, you point it out. Your spouse seems uneasy, saying, sounded like someone was trying to open the bag very, very slowly and quietly as to not wake us up. You both agree that it seems very odd for the bag to suddenly start making noise in the middle of the night, but think it must be gravity at work. The rest of the night passes without incident, and other than a brief acknowledgement in the morning, you quickly forget about it. A few nights go by, and due to busy schedules, you are both in bed fairly early with no time for anything else. Tonight is different, though. Finally, it's the weekend, and you can stay up as late as you would like. So once again, you get comfy, grab a few snacks, turn on a show. A bag of Cheeto Puffs sits on your lap, and you savor every bite. As one episode ends and another begins, you glance over to see your spouse barely keeping their eyes open. So you opt to turn the TV off. You roll up your snacks and once again set it on the ground next to your bed, making sure to lay it all the way flat so it won't tip over. You fall asleep quickly, but find it somewhat restless. Out of the reaches of your sleep, you hear something. Could it really be again? Reality pulls you to the surface, and with a pounding heart, you realize you hear the soft, 
slow opening of the tinsel bag. Unease grips at you, and you sit up and face the direction of the noise. The sound stops dead, leaving a heavy silence. This time, your spouse sleeps soundly, and the fear of facing this alone creeps into your heart. You lower your head back down to the pillow, and almost as if on cue, the crinkling resumes. A coincidence? Or is something else going on here? Your imagination takes control, and you imagine ghosts, intruders, and even the age-old monster under the bed. It feels all too real in the moment, and you tell yourself that your gut is trying to tell you something is off. You raise yourself up on one elbow, once again, and the sound halts. You immediately rule out coincidence. You concentrate hard on trying to see the bag, but impossibly, this corner seems so much darker than the rest of the room. You try to come to grips with reality as you try to reconcile if the darkness looks like it's moving. You have always been a skeptic when it comes to the supernatural, but faced with the possibility right now, you freeze. Not sure what you should or even could do in this situation, you lay back down and squeeze your eyes tight. Your ears burn as the noises resume. This time, louder and more persistent. Your heart is beating so fast you feel like it's going to explode. Out of the far reaches of your memory, you recall religious prayer taught to you as a child, meant to banish spirits with evil intent. You recite this over and over in your head, and you suddenly realize the room is silent. Too afraid to look around again, you lay perfectly still. Waiting for the sounds to come again at any moment, your heart continues to race, but you hear nothing. Anxiety keeps you awake for a few more hours until sleep finally consumes you whole. When you awake, your head hurts and it takes a moment to recall why you feel on edge. In the light of the morning sun, you question if the events and feelings from last night were even real or if you simply overreacted to an innocent noise. All you know for sure is that you will not be eating a midnight snack for quite some time. So what was it? <laughs> I can tell you. It was you guys? <laughs> so this is a true story. So we did hear some crinkling, and my wife is in the room with us, so she you might hear some giggles. We did hear crinkling, and I did have a bag of popcorn, and I put it down the side, and we both wake up to hearing it crinkle, as if someone was opening it. I look around, don't see anything, think, what the heck, whatever, we go back to bed, uh, just like the story states. <laughs> Happens again, a few nights later, we both like wake up, and we're like, we heard it again, like, like it, or you heard it, at least. Uh, maybe I was asleep, but it did happen a second time. And last night, <laughs> last night, um, I was in the office and my wife, Shalay, comes in. She says, I think we have a mouse. <gasps> no way. <laughs> and sure enough, we did. No way. <laughs> we had a mouse in our, a mouse in our house. <laughs> and he, that little bugger was going all over basement, main floor, and the top floor, just eating like he was in our food storage and he was eating it. There's like little holes in, in our food. And so there's like trails, trails of crumbs. And of course, little mouse turds everywhere. But we we panicked and we like had someone come and clean the carpets today. And we spent our Sunday just cleaning up after this mouse. 
Oh, no. <laughs> so we ran to Walmart. We were able to find some traps, loaded them with peanut butter, and luckily we actually caught him like 10 minutes later. It's a hungry mouse. Yeah. Yeah. So we got him, took care of it. But it was scary because at one point we're like, what the heck is <laughs> that? You're haunted. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was definitely. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. So there you go. Yeah, that's uh, a little too spooky for me, I think. <laughs> Don't tell me you ate those Cheetos and then the popcorn after that. I actually, I finished the popcorn, but I remember there not being a hole in the bag because I would have spilled the crumbs everywhere because it was very crumbly. Okay. So, and then the Cheetos, the, they were fine. There's no hole in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. But it got into our pretzel chips, and that was not cool. Oh, that's the worst <laughs> offense here. And some of our... Bags of sugar and um, like flour and stuff like that. Pro oh, my protein powder. That really oh, made man. me mad. Yeah. <laughs> it's macho mouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's some juiced up freaking mouse running around our, our house right now. Like <laughs> just roided out of his mind. <laughs> That's why you can bite through everything right now. Okay. So. Wow. Spooky, yeah. funny story. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you uh, What do you have for us today? All right. I've got kind of a local story, kind of a not local story. Part of it takes place in Utah, so I'm counting it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I just want to warn everyone that it is a very, very gory case in many ways. And TW. I trigger warning. You are warned. <laughs> I obsessed over it for like a solid two months straight. I have like this habit of attaching myself to a case and then learning everything I can possible about it for no reason other than my own curiosity. And this was one of them. Others include Jim Jones, Chris Watts. I'm sure we'll get to those eventually, but here oh, we are. Is this about another cult leader? No. <laughs> <laughs> this is about Jody Arias. Have you heard of Jody Arias? I'm not. All right, so I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad. All right, so this case is insane. Um, it happened in the early 2000s, so lucky for us, all the courtroom footage, all the photos, they're all online. It's very easy to find nice. horrible photos from this case. Not nice. And courtroom footage, it was all documented. It's all on YouTube. And when I say it was a circus in the courtroom, I mean it was an absolute circus. And I'll tell you why. So today I'm telling you about the murder of Travis Alexander at the hands of his ex-girlfriend, Jody Arias. Now, Travis Alexander was born on July 28, 1977, in Riverside, California, to abusive parents. He and his seven siblings experienced tremendous neglect, and their parents were addicted to drugs. So they were very underweight, they were malnourished because all their money went to drugs and they didn't feed their children. And because of this, Travis was really small and unhealthy and he got bullied at school because of his appearance. Um, I can't remember exactly how old he was. I want to say he was like 12 or 10-ish, but he ran away from home and moved into his grandparents' house. And his grandparents gave him a better life by all means. And he didn't want to continue this cycle of abuse, so he worked really hard to overcome his childhood trauma 
and eventually led him to become a motivational speaker, and he just built a better life for himself. His grandparents introduced him to Mormon doctrine, and he got baptized as a member of the LDS Church, and people recount this time of Travis's life as one of the most productive. With this newfound ambition, he wanted to leave behind his old life, and perhaps he saw his newfound religion as a new start. Friends say he was a very faithful member, adhering to all of the church rules and only dating women who held the same beliefs as he did and held themselves to the same standards. Because of this, he had a lot of relationships, but none ever lasted very long. However, he was the man in the spotlight. He was eccentric, he had a difficult childhood which he overcame, and he was a go-getter by all means, so it makes sense that a lot of his peers were attracted to him. He was magnetic in every good way. By the time he reached 30, he was ready to get married. He was living in Mesa, Arizona. He was thriving financially. He had a car, a home, many friends, and was higher up in his company, and he was finally accepted by his own community. Such a different story from his upbringing in the home with abusive parents. Now, before we learn about the day Travis died, we need to learn about Jody. Jody Arias was born and raised in Salinas, California. By all accounts, she had a picturesque childhood. Now, Jody claims her parents abused her, and her mom would carry a wooden spoon in her purse to remind her children that she could beat them at any time. Many people believe Jody's story to be crap, and that she made it up in the courtroom to garner jury sympathy because there's absolutely no evidence of this abuse. When Jody was a teenager, her family moved from Salinas, California, to a tiny itty-bitty town called Wairika, California. It's a tiny city in the countryside with less than 8,000 people. Her parents noticed a major difference in her behavior after they moved to Wairika. In eighth grade, they suspected something was wrong and decided to take a look around her room. And what did they find? Other than she was growing a, growing a cannabis plant in her closet. They said this was a turning point in their relationship with Jody, that she never trusted them again and never spoke to them again about anything that was going on in their life, or in her life, I mean. Jody moved out of her parents' house and eventually started dating a man named Daryl Brewer. He was a single father and she fit right in with his family. Um, the relationship ended, but they stayed friends. Daryl and living with him eventually led her to another job which led her to meet somebody who was in an MLM, or a multi-level marketing company. It was called Prepaid Legal, and she joined, but it's since changed its name to Legal Shield. And this is the same company that Travis Alexander was a big part of. This is where Travis and Jody would collide, and their history would change forever. At a Las Vegas MLM convention in September of 2006, Travis saw Jody across the room, he would joke about how he wanted Mrs. Wright like he wanted arm candy. He wanted the perfect woman. At first sight, he was taken with Jody. She was blonde, she was dressed well, and exuded confidence. Jody was immediately taken with Travis in his pinstripe suit, looking like a man who knew exactly what he wanted out of life. They spent the entire night talking together for hours, completely entranced by each other. After the convention, they stayed in contact. Now keep in mind, Jody lived in Wairika, and Travis lived in Mesa, Arizona, so there was quite a bit of dis distance there. But months of emails and phone calls back and forth, 
and visits led to them falling in love. Now remember how I said Travis refused to lower his religious standards for anyone? Well, he told Jody this, and in order to stay with him, she joined the Mormon church and had Travis baptize her, her himself. On the outside, it looked like Travis and Jody were a perfect match. They were in love and spent as much time together as possible. The friends of Travis noticed Jody's facade started to crumble once things became serious. They were attached at the hip, and they were always talking, not in a good way. So, Travis's friends got really bad vibes from Jody and warned him about these certain behaviors that they noticed. Giving Travis the benefit of the doubt, often new relationships, uh, people tend to overlook red flags. So, it's friends like these that kind of get, they keep you on the right path, <laughs> to say the least. This all came to a head when Travis and Jody spent the night at one of their friends' house, Sky and Chris Hughes. Uh, this couple's home was halfway between Jody and Travis, so it was a common meeting point for whenever they'd go on vacation. Sky noticed that Jody would get upset any time Travis spoke to another woman. She demanded to sit by him constantly because she wanted to make sure everyone knew he was a taken man. And things got worse soon after this. One day, Travis's friends had enough of Jody's toxic, possessive behavior and they pulled him aside to talk some sense into him. With the bedroom door closed, his good friends told Travis their concerns and explained to him that Jody was showing stalker-like symptoms, saying that she was always listening, always watching, and always waiting for him. Skye even says, I bet you Jody's outside this door right now listening to us. And of course, Travis goes, yeah, right. So what does Skye do? She walks over, opens the door, and sure enough, little old Jody was standing there with her ear cupped against it. Stood there like a deer in headlights, caught red-handed. Busted. Sky says Jody had the evilest, blankest look on her face. A look she's never seen before. Something that portrayed the utmost hatred. It seemed like this experience was a wake-up call for Travis, and he broke things off with Jody soon after. Travis kept up his good boy looks, but it's later been revealed that he and Jody were having premarital sex all the time, which is a huge no-no in their religion. This is an important part in understanding Jody's motivation because she had converted to the church for him. She had kept his same standards because it's what he wanted, not what she wanted, until he finally caved. And they did this all the time. It made Travis feel guilty, and he would let Jody know that he felt his guilt and he wasn't supposed to do it, so then they'd get in fights, and then the cycle would continue. People saw him as this innocent, handsome man, but Travis blamed Jody for spoiling his image. He was upset that she was his own weakness, but let's be honest here, it takes two to tango, so it's not just his, or sorry, it's not just her fault, it's both of their faults. So even though he was upset, this didn't stop. Perhaps Jody felt like she'd given so much to Travis by converting to him, living his way, then giving in when he wanted to, and being guilted every time they did the dirty deed. Perhaps this vicious cycle created an extremely unhealthy attachment between the two. In fact, I'd go so far to say that it certainly did. They continued their forbidden relations well after they split up. They traveled to each other, give it another go, break off, get upset, go home, start the cycle over again. The relationship was, by all accounts, intense. This fueled Jody's rage. She wanted Travis, 
She wanted her man all to herself. Even though they had officially broken up, she was enraged when she found out he started seeing other women back in Arizona. Friends say that during their breakup, Jody even went so far as to move to Travis's city, totally crossing all of his boundaries. She had the code to his garage and would randomly come over. She would even sneak in through the doggy door to his house some nights. The girls Travis was dating would receive random messages from an unknown number threatening them. Their tires would be slashed, Travis's tires were slashed, and ultimately, these girls would leave Travis because some psycho ex-girlfriend was messing up their lives. And I don't blame them. Wow. Psychopath. Yeah. Because Jody and Travis were so wildly, inexplicably addicted to each other, she would unlock his house and sneak into his bed at night, and he didn't seem to mind it. Their relations continued even though Travis refused to be in a romantic relationship with Jody. Eventually, Jody moved back to California, where everyone thought that finally the couple could move on with their own lives. But, as you can predict, they didn't stop talking to each other. Travis's friends said a massive fight erupted between them on social media because he was, he was upset Jody was talking to other men. I mean, the control. <laughs> this is such an extremely toxic relationship from both sides. The man Jody was interested in was a man from Salt Lake City, Utah, who was also part of the same MLM. His name was Ryan Burns, and he invited Jody to come stay with him in Salt Lake City for a convention. The plan was that she would drive from California to Utah and be there on June 4th. However, when that day came, Ryan didn't hear from Jody, she didn't answer her phone, and she didn't show up, at least not until June 5th, a whole entire day later than she was supposed to. Now keep in mind this is early 2000s, everyone had a cell phone so there's no reason why Jody couldn't call Ryan to let him know she wasn't going to make it on time. When she finally did show up in Utah, Ryan was shocked. This wasn't the Jody he knew. She showed up as a brunette. She dyed her hair. She, he also noted that she had cuts all over her hands, which she attributed to working at a bar. Something wasn't right, but ultimately he let it go and they went on with their lives as planned. By the time June 9th rolled around, no one had heard from Travis. What made this really strange is that he had plans to go on a trip with one of his new lady friends, but never showed up to go on the trip with her. This was just unlike him. A group of his friends went to Travis's house to check on him. They rang the doorbell, knocked on the door, but no one answered. They were able to get in through the garage and upon entering noticed his things were home, so it didn't make sense if he packed up and left somewhere, leaving his wallet and keys behind. Travis's roommate came out of his room and was in total surprise to see this group of people in his house. He was watching a movie loudly in his room and hadn't heard their knocks. He said he hadn't seen or heard from Travis in days, so assumed he'd left on his trip early. Well, clearly, this wasn't the case. As the group made their way to Travis's part of the house, down the hall to his huge bedroom, they noticed strips of blood on the tile. When they entered his room, he wasn't there. The bed was stripped and there were pools of blood everywhere. And I mean everywhere. In horror, they discovered Travis's naked, bloated corpse huddled in a ball on the floor of his shower. And I'm going to play you a portion of the 911 call that the friends made after they discovered his body. Word of warning, because it's really sad and graphic, so jump ahead 2 minutes and 10 seconds if you'd like to skip the call. 
What's going on? Um, a friend of ours is dead in his bedroom. We, we hadn't heard from him for a while. We think he's dead. His roommate just went in there and, and said there's lots of blood. I didn't go in, but I, I can give you the phone to someone who went in there. Can, yes, please, can you? Hello. Hi, so what's going on? He's... Uh, he he's dead. He's in his bedroom okay. in in the shower. Okay. How did this happen? Do you have any idea? No, we have no idea. Everyone's been wondering about him okay. for well, a few said, days. Well, she said that there was blood. So is it coming from his head? Did he? Cut no, his head? I, it, I, it's all over the place. Is there any weapons around? I no, I don't know. I not that I saw. How many people are in the house? There are, how, how many of us, how many are in the house right now? Just the five of us? Five of us. Okay, I need all of you outside. Okay. Hold on just a moment. Okay, you're a good friend of, of Travis's, correct? Yes, I am. Okay, yeah. has he been depressed at all, thinking about yeah. committing suicide, anything like that? I, I don't think he's been thinking he committed suicide. He's been really depressed because he uh, broke up with this girl. And he was all upset about that, but I, I don't think he would actually kill himself over that. Has he been threatened by anyone recently? Yes, he has. Okay. He has a he has an ex girlfriend that's been bothering him and and um, following him and slashing tires and things like that. And do you know the ex-girlfriend's name? Um, um, do you remember it? Yeah. What's, what's his ex-girlfriend's name? That's Taylor. And do you know if he's ever reported it to the police? Um, her, his, her name is Jody. Um, I don't know if he's ever reported. Hold on. All right, so that is the call that his friends made to the police, and you can hear right off the bat that they were suspicious of Jody Arias. They knew that she was obsessed with him, and they told the cops right after that that they needed to look into her right now. Investigators arrived on the scene, and they noticed a few things were off about the crime. First, there was a 25 caliber shell case loaded, located next to Travis's corpse. He was stabbed 29 times with a kitchen knife, and he was nearly decapitated, neck slit from ear to ear, found in the Among shower. And while passing the laundry room of the house, an investigator noted what looked like a bloody fingerprint on the lid of the washing machine, which caused him to open it up. Inside, they found the contents of Travis's bed, like his sheets and comforter. They also found a digital camera inside of the washing machine, clearly thrown in there with the intent to be destroyed. The images they found on the camera were shocking. A naked man and woman were posed for the camera in suggestive ways, the man being Travis, the woman being Jody Arias. The photos were timestamped for June 4th, the day Jody was supposed to arrive in Utah with her new boo, Ryan Burns. But if she was on a road trip to Utah, how was she in Mesa, Arizona that night? Among the next set of discovered photos were, Travis, were pictures of Travis Alexander in the shower. He was posing in the water stream in some of the photos. Then in what's believed to be the final picture of Travis alive, he's turned towards the camera with an expression of terror. The next photos have him lying on the ground. Whoever took the photos didn't realize that the camera was set on an automatic timer 
and at some point the camera was put on the ground. It captured what looks like a bloody corpse being dragged, and in the corner of the picture is someone's leg adorned with sneakers and sweatpants, some that belonged to Jody Arias. This photo was a smoking gun for detectives. They arrested Jody back in California, and when brought in for questioning, she was very charming. She claimed total innocence. She said that she was on a road trip to Utah during the time Travis would have been murdered, so there's absolutely no way she was there in Mesa. Investigators asked Jody to explain why she showed up at Ryan's house a day late and to explain her road trip to them. She claims she was late because she got lost at some point, didn't know where she was, and pulled over to rest for the night. I forgot to mention that she rented a car for the trip even though she already had a car. The attendant that checked her out told police Jody reportedly requested a car, quote, not to be red because that brings attention from cops. The same car was also returned without its floor mats and with red stains on the seats, which this couldn't be verified because the blood or the supposed blood was cleaned before the investigation ever took place. Also, I should say that shortly before Jody left on the trip, her grandparents in California were robbed and in the police report, the only thing taken was a 25 caliber pistol, the same as the casing found at the scene of the crime. At some point during the interrogation, they left Jody alone in the room for a while. This is a tactic I've seen used in interrogations before, as a way to observe how suspects act when they think no one's watching them, and they're stressed and under pressure. Now, Jody was acting weird. She sang herself Christmas carols. She spoke to herself. She said something along the lines of, Pa, hate me now. And then she did a handstand. Investigators came back in the room and showed Jody the pictures that they found on the camera of herself and asked her to explain why she was there that night naked on Travis's bed. She claimed that the photos were doctored and that someone was out to get her. Then they put pressure on Jody and eventually she cracked. Her story of events goes like this. She took the road trip with the intent to go to Utah to visit Ryan but would go the long way around and stop in Arizona to see Travis. While there, she claims that two masked ninjas, yes, masked ninjas, <laughs> awesome, <laughs> broke into his house and murdered Travis. They let her go though, because they were only there for Travis, but they pulled out her license and told her, we know where you live, so if you say anything, we'll come find you. So that's why she didn't call police. When investigators didn't buy that bullshit of a story, she says she actually went to Travis's home, they took the photos of each other, then she said she offered to take pictures of him in the shower because he was getting ready for his new vacation with his new girlfriend, and he was looking good physically. So while she's taking these photos, she drops the camera and Travis snaps. He screams at her, runs out of the shower, chases her all around the bedroom, and wrestles her, beating her up. At some point, she gets away from him, runs and grabs the hidden gun from his closet and then shoots him in the head and stabs him just to make sure that he wouldn't kill her. But she says that she doesn't remember doing this, that she just blacked out and let instinct take over. Well, when that story didn't work, they took Jody to court. Now this trial was insane. It's just, it's all over YouTube. You can find it, super easy. It went on for days. And the entire time, Jody held up her belief that she was a victim of Travis's abuse and had to kill him for her own safety. 
Juan Martinez was a prosecutor on the case, and his goal was to piece together what actually happened to Travis for the jury. And in the trial, he quoted Travis in saying, Jody was a sociopath and the worst thing that ever happened to me. Martinez was a rock star in the trial. When Jody took the stand, he was able to derail any and all lies she had by using her own story against her. And it's quite beautiful to watch her get angrier and angrier at Martinez as he hounds her with hard-hitting questions that she just can't answer. During the trial, a phone sex tape recording was played for everyone to hear as part of the evidence. Jody recorded this phone call between her and Travis without his consent, in which he divulges some of his craziest fantasies to her. It's disgusting what happens during the call, and no, I'm not being naive or immature. When I tell you the cringe I felt, I just wanted to take my skin off, wash it, and hang it to dry, because it made me shiver with disgust at the way Jody acted on the call and the horrible things Travis said to her. And it's on YouTube if you're morbidly curious, but we are not going to play it here. <laughs> Aw, man. Uh, another point in the case, Juan Martinez was getting really sick and tired of waiting for answers to his questions. He was impatient. And so at this point, what he did is he took a photo he had with him of Travis Alexander's corpse on the autopsy table. Specifically, a picture of his neck slit where his head is tilted back and the contents of his neck are on display for the coroner. Martinez took this picture and held it up for the entire courtroom to see. You can hear the audience shriek with gasps of horror. This wasn't planned and that photo evidence wasn't permitted, but he did it to shock the jury and all hell broke loose. Can you imagine being part of Travis's family, grieving the horrific murder, being forced to listen to your own brother's sex tape, and then seeing the raw image of his gaping neck wound? Can you imagine the trauma they felt? Something prosecutors were trying to piece together was the timeline of how Travis died. Here's what they believe happened. Jody went on this road trip and had already planned the murder well ahead of time. She stole the gun from her parents, or sorry, grandparents, rented the car, dyed her hair, and then drove to Mesa, Arizona. She then snuck into Travis's room, which wasn't unusual for her, and Travis was open to getting it on. They took those pictures together, then he went to shower, and at some point, Jody got up, got dressed, went downstairs, and grabbed a kitchen knife. She came into the bathroom and took pictures of Travis while he was in the shower, telling him how hot he looked and how to pose right, as she was good with the camera. Then in a moment, she raised the knife and plunged it into his chest over and over again. He fought hard because his hands were covered in defensive wounds and you simply don't get those if you're the one doing the stabbing. He tried to crawl away, but as he was doing so, she, she came up behind him pulled up his head and slit his neck, causing him to lose consciousness in a matter of seconds. Then she took the pistol and shot him in the face. She did some cleanup work soon after, bringing his dead body back to the shower. Then she took all the bedding and camera, <coughs> excuse me, and the camera and threw it into the washing machine, thinking that the water would get rid of all the photo evidence. What a dumb idiot she is. <laughs> She claims she doesn't remember stabbing Travis, that she blacked out in rage and was just protecting herself from him. She said she can't remember the sequence of events of when she shot him, when she stabbed him, when she slit his throat, but it all happened at some point. Ultimately, Jody's lies didn't work. She was convicted of first-degree murder 
and during the sentencing phase, she changed her mind. At first, she said that if she were guilty, she would hope that the jury would decide to put her to death because she wouldn't deserve to live without Travis. But she changed her mind to wanting life in prison. As she's pleading to the jury why she wants to live, she gives them these reasons. She told the jury that if they spared her life, she would commit to grow her hair and donate it to Locks of Love. She would make art. She would sell t-shirts to other, and I'm doing finger quotes here, survivors of domestic abuse. And I kid you not, as she says this, she stands up with a t-shirt, holds it up against her torso, allowing it to unfold, and printed on the shirt, it says survivor across the chest. And this is the shirt she'd planned to sell to other survivors. This is a smack in the face to real survivors of abuse. Travis is the victim here. Even though he wasn't the pure boy everyone thought he was, this crime wasn't his. To add one final blow to Travis, one last painful remark, as she was leaving the stand, Jody addressed Travis's family. She said she actually does remember how it happened in sequence, and that he was completely conscious while she slit his throat, and that, she, and that he felt every single stab. Jody was sentenced to life in prison, and there she sings in talent shows, makes art, does all the handstands she wants, and tattoos her, cell her cellmates. One ex-con who shared a cell with her actually let Jody tattoo her own name above her ankle. So yeah, that's the story of Travis Alexander and Jody Arias. And I could go on forever, but that is a very short version of it. Otherwise, we'd be here for days. <laughs> wow, what an intense, what an intense murder. Yeah. Wow, insane. Um, and one thing to know is typically victims of abuse, if they are protecting themselves, it's like a one and done thing and then they try to get away. They don't right. stab 29 times, slit the throat, then shoot him in the face. This was done in anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's obvious that she's guilty. Obvious. So, yeah, everyone, that's the story of Travis Alexander and Jody Arias. If you choose to look this one up, I I give you a word of caution if you choose to, to look this one up because the pictures are on the internet and they are easily found. So it's a word of warning going forward. Jeez. Yeah. Mm, now I'm uncomfortable and sad. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dang. Yeah. I. Uh, great story. That was well written. Um, I'm like having a hard time trying to process everything because, yeah. I'm sorry. I threw everything at you. If there's like so much about it, I could have included, but I just went with like the biggest facts of the case. Mm -hmm. But there's like this one thing where, she, uh, Juan Martinez is like basically yelling at her mm -hmm. because she's saying one moment that she can't remember it, like how she stabbed Travis or shot him. But then in another moment, she's recalling her exact Frappuccino order from Starbucks like five years ago <laughs> on one day. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So there's a lot of like, there's a video of like the funniest moments from it. Cause there's a lot, but yeah, that move by Juan Martinez, that was so out of left field. Definitely. I'm excited to do some homework and look up some of the footage. Yeah, and for the sure. pictures. So, um, I noticed that you have pictures for the case, so I will post those on our Instagram, so you guys can check those out there. But 
Okay, wild story. Do you uh, have anything else to share? That's it. Okay, well, guys, we'll scare you in the next one. Stay spooky.